0: Hello, everyone. This is Brittany Martin, and I have some exciting news to share. I'm officially the new host of this podcast. As a quick recap about me, I'm a Ruby on Rails developer that works for the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust as the nonprofit's lead web developer, where I'm part of the team that develops, supports, and maintains the Trust's ticketing, and festival web applications. Under my alter ego, Norma Skates, I play, bench manage, and referee roller derby for the Little Steel Derby Girls and the Pittsburgh East Roller Villains. Now, as you know, we've been on a hiatus for quite some time, but with me taking the helm, we'll be on a much more consistent publishing schedule. I'll be pivoting the show to more interviews with developers and companies that are truly committed to supporting and scaling Ruby on Rails. If you have any ideas about whom I should be talking with, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter at Britt J. Martin, that's B-R-I-T-T-J Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N. Today, I am joined with Nick Schwaderer, Full stack Ruby on Rails software engineer for Oceans HQ in Torpoint, England. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hey, Brittany. Thank you much. It's uh, great to be here. Awesome. I think you're going to be a wonderful first guest as I'm hosting the podcast. So I'd like to start off every interview by asking Nick, what brought you to the Ruby community? Sure. So I
1: was one of those perennial children, always interested in creating things and programming and, 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 um, obviously computers, I guess, in general, from a very young pre-internet, pre pre-dial-up age. And, uh, it never really left me. I actually went to university as many Rubyists did for something completely to the side, you know, law and business, went out into the real world, started working for a few years and kind of Ruby just crept up. I remember reading an article about this, you know, hip new language and what people were building with it, got interested, went the deep dive on my own, found my way into a code school. And then came out of that and immediately said, I have to, before I try and get work, I have to build a thing. So I built my state's first ever, uh, kind of transparency checkbook application where people could, uh, query, you know, certain payees that might be getting money from the state. And that hooked into the state, uh, public API and could give them notifications every month as to who is getting what payments and actually be able to subscribe to people. Uh, From that, I ended up getting employment back where I went to university here in the UK for, as you said, Ocean's HQ and Torpoint, and I'm starting my fourth year there, so never looked back since.
0: That's fantastic. Well, I want to congratulate you on getting your first pull request merged into Rails. What made you decide that you wanted to contribute to Rails?
1: Uh, thank you very much it was uh, really neat to have happen and I I didn't know when you get a pull request accepted on a repo on github that if you this I just discovered this other day whenever you post from then on you get a little contributor flyer next to your account so I wonder if that gives me a little extra weight when I'm when I'm filing issues now but in general what made me decide that I wanted to contribute um, you know, it's not a requirement, right? So I'm working in my day job, trying to build a, you know, decent applications that are useful, useful to users. And um, but, but, but I rely on so many things from, from the open source community, right? I wanted to be able to give back and uh, instead of just consuming all these free lovely gems and libraries. And also wanted to have a voice in the community that I participate in. Honestly, I listen to a lot of podcasts, hear a lot of people talking about it and wanted to be involved with my community and just gain experience. Because let's be honest, you know, it's one thing to consume these materials, but to actually go out and uh, form pull requests on the core code is a lot more difficult than my day to day. So that's that's what gave me the itch to contribute.
0: I completely agree that. I think it's so awesome. So when you decided that you wanted to contribute to open source, did you have your heart set on Rails? And if not, where did you go to find open source projects that needed your help?
1: I think that is a really good way to put it. Uh, I did have my heart set on rails, but not from that I was seeking it out. I just think maybe other developers may feel this way, but uh, you know, pr- pr- previous jobs, what, do you, what are you aiming for? What is What are you seeking, right? People might want a promotion or they might want to make more money, but there's something that always seemed kind of cool to me. You know, if you could get, a PR on something as big as Rails or Ruby someday—it was always in the back of my head, but it's not where I went first. Right? Um, the first way that I got into contribution was actually just tactful changes. So one common uh, scenario is doing an upgrade. So if you're upgrading your Ruby version, or if you're upgrading your Rails version, you know you're you're going to run into everything with your dependencies. And you will ultimately, if you, even if you have just a few dependencies, you'll run into issues where either they're not ready to accept the new rails version, or they have problems with the new rails or Ruby version. And then you have to dive in and get involved. I mean, uh, you know, uh, and and also just what you commonly use if you run into bugs. For example, there's a gem out there that allows you to migrate existing data sets and databases from a primary key of uh, an integer to a UUID, which it's easy enough if you start that way, but if you have. A production database running that way—it's difficult. There was a gem for that. I used it, and I and I actually located a bug to within the gem's core. Right, so I was able to go in, make that PR, become a contributor in just everyday life, and that's one way that developers can do it. Um, and then finally, uh, I but I did want to be able to passively contribute, even with a little bit of my time, and I just got to recommend here a uh, uh, core contributor, uh, Richard Schneeman, uh, known as Schneems. Has a wonderful tool called Code Triage, where you can subscribe to existing repositories you care about and on your own timeline get emails kind of detailing open PRs, open issues. And I just kind of started consuming that. Even if I didn't participate, I'd go and read the issues and just get familiar with reading it before I'd try and jump in.
0: That makes complete sense. I've used code triage myself and one thing I really like about the mentality of the site is that you don't necessarily have to contribute code to the repository in order to help. Sometimes it's just going into the issue and just simply asking the question, hey, whoever opened this issue, is this still a problem for you? Do you need help? Otherwise, just closing issues can really release a lot of burden off those open source maintainers. So. Listeners, if you're considering getting into open source, definitely check out codetriage.com and we'll include that in the show notes. So Nick, I'd love to hear more about the the actual contribution that you made. As you know, our listeners are avid Ruby on Rails um, users and so you might actually be educating our audience on a change that they should know about.
1: Oh, sure, so um, that's, that's a great next question. So I will first talk about how I stumbled onto it because I was, and I think this is kind of a key, moral here. I was not seeking out a PR when it fell into my lap. Uh, So, gosh, a couple of years ago, uh, David Heinemeier Hansen, or I'll just say David, because I know DHH is his tag, but I feel weird saying DHH. David, uh, the creator and, you know, original core maintainer Rails had started an issue, which rolled through down to Rails 5.1, which uh, added a new chunk of API to how we handle forms in rails. So our users, or sorry, our users, the uh, rails users and your listeners probably very familiar, you know, form for form tag, or if you use another gem simple form for where you're passing, uh, an object or collection of objects to it, or you're passing a URL to it. And his idea was that we, we have two areas that we're kind of jumping back and forth on forms. We should really just have one that's form with. And you can specify whether it's with a model or with a URL. And of course, a few extensions on top of that. And it was released in Rails 5.1, and at Ocean's HQ, we love new toys in Rails. And we said, yeah, let's use it, let's use it. So we had a new Greenfield application come out, and I was looking to use FormWith, and just want to make sure I knew what I was doing with it, because there's a few unexpected things. And uh, uh, just for the listeners, Rails guides, is part of Rails core. It's kind of the core source of truth to be um, consumed by Rails users. And I went there to look at the form helpers guide to see how to use form with, because there's a brief mention about it in the release notes, and it wasn't there. So I went to the original uh, PR and just asked the question, hey, uh, has this been updated in the guides? Is it it there anywhere? And these changes have been put together by another core maintainer, Casper uh, Tim Hansen, another Hansen. And the response I got was not, no, you fool just go here. This is all the answers. It was, oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. Have a crack at it. Uh, David himself said, yeah, just go ahead and uh, include it yourself. So I went from wanting to find the docs, um, on this new bit of API to being invited to write them, uh, because there was information in the core API documentation, which a uh, lay user wouldn't read that often. Um, so, basically, what I did is uh, I went into figuring out how to use Rails guides and pulling it down and spinning it up from the core Rails app and kind of going bit by bit through there and including it. Um, and I guess learning a bit about form with on the way, right? Um, of course. Yeah, I mean, this this is this is the way to learn, right? Isn't the phrase learn by doing? Uh, Absolutely. So- I mean, you've been there, right? Where sometimes the best way to learn something is to try and make yourself explain to someone else, right? Absolutely. Like, Like with pairing. Um, so iteration one, all I did was, uh, I was really meek, right? So I just added a little blurb to the guide saying, also, this is form with, and this is how you can use it and here's the way. And David responded saying, that's fine, but I don't want to do it this way in typical style. He wanted a complete rewrite where we removed every reference to form for and form tag, replaced all of it with form with and how it's supposed to be used, and then have like one line at the bottom that said, oh, by the way, you can still use form for and form tag if you look at the old docs. But it was about 800 lines that I uh, had wow. to go through. I know, and I and I was terrified because the thing is, it's not a quiet change, is it? It's, it's a mm-hmm. change that new users... Of Rails are going to be reading and trying to use, and if I do anything wrong, it's going to break for someone, right? Um, so yeah, so I mean the changes just for your uh, listeners, um, with you know combining form tag and form for as well. But the other tricky one, which was not listed in the release notes, that caught me out, was remote true by default. So mm. if you rem- if you remember uh, traditionally in form 4 and form tag, you can specify an option, of remote true, which Allows you to bind to an AJAX call and not have to do a full page refresh and everything on submitting a form, right? Um, yes. So that's if you, yeah, if you want to be AJAXy and clever, um, you know, we didn't do that in some of our places with my applications. So when it defaulted to remote true and I didn't know that it was doing it, is is just a situation of why is my form not doing anything now that I've clicked it? And in the new API, to, if you want to go back to the old way, you just specify local true instead of uh, remote true. So yeah, so hopefully uh, when, I guess it will have to be in the next Rails release. But if you go to edgeguides.rubyonrails.com,
0: it'll all be there now. Absolutely. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. So I'd love to get your thoughts on the idea of a sneak, ap- a sneak attack pull request. So basically what this means is that you, as an open-source contributor, come to a repository, you see something that you feel should be changed, there isn't a related issue to it, and then you do all the work of creating that pull request and then you basically open it and hope that the maintainer agrees with you and is willing to merge that in. Do you feel that that approach is smart or do you think it's better to have, um, an issue opened or some sort of discussion somewhere to happen first?
1: That's really good because you can go both ways. And my answer is I think you should be able to do an issue. I think you should be able to say, um, I've identified something. Here's a testable case maybe, or a feature idea. Uh, and certainly you're not always going to know how to write the code that needs to happen, right? But I think then I kind of rein myself into the pragmatic realist, Nick, where if you've got something like Ruby on Rails or some of these larger gems where you have people working their tails off all day to deal with everything, I think the best way tactically to be heard might be to put together a PR, PR, even if it's not 100% with it, because I think in a way it almost honors the maintainers by saying, I care enough about this issue to try, to try and participate and do it myself. And they may come up and tell you that you've done it completely the wrong way and that it's not good, but I think it's a way to honor them. And I don't think they find it intrusive, you know, because some people might think I don't want to file a PR, but I've never seen anyone offended by one, you know?
0: Yes. I think the more discussion, the better. But if you feel that you have a a good approach, you know, even in that pull request, just being very open to getting feedback from the maintainers, understanding that you're coming in as a new person who's just trying to learn. And I just love the idea of the uh, first timer, first timer like contribution tags on GitHub to really make it clear on issues which ones those are good for tackling. But um, speaking of, how big do you think a contribution needs to be uh, on a repository for you to feel proud of it to feel like you truly a, contribu- a contributor of that repository? Do you think it has to be code related?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe it's because of, uh, I'm quite a positive fellow. So I think that um, it doesn't have to be that big for me to be proud, right? So for example, you said this earlier, right? On code triage, and maybe 95% of my participation in the open source community, as limited as it is, is going to be part communicative. Right. So I GitHub I think will only do contributor tags for actual merged code. However, I think that you look at code tree as you see how many issues out there. Don't have a problem with someone coding. It's a problem with people checking in unanswered questions, you know, friendly reminders and bumps. I'm not talking about harassing open source maintainers, but to give you an example of a non major PR that I'd be proud of if I see, you know, a question that's been asked and not answered and just kind of chime in with my two cents. Someone comes in or I ask, hey, has this been resolved for you? Do you agree it's been resolved? And then I get an email notification two days later that an issue that's been open for three years has been closed. Um, and they say, yes, it's fine. I mean, that, I, I would be proud of those. And I think uh, others should be as well, because, you know, that issue number, being able to help bring it down or move it along, even if you aren't an expert on the area, is yeah, it's something I'd be proud of as well.
0: I agree, it's forward momentum on the repository, so I think anyone should be proud of that. So, speaking of, how would you have felt, you know, you mentioned that you're looking at eight, editing 800 lines of documentation. How would you have felt if you had done all that work to ultimately have your pull request go stale or just to have the maintainers close it by saying, hey, this this just isn't the right direction that we wanted to go in? Would you have felt discouraged? Like, How would you have felt in the end if that had happened?
1: Um, yeah, so I have had that happen to me and I, it is, you know what? It's It is discouraging at first, right? And I think for people just dipping their toe into this world, it is discouraging to put a lot of effort and pain maybe for a few weeks into something and have it ultimately closed. I mean, I'll give you an example. So active storage, loved it when it came out again, jumped right on it. Everything about it was effortless, uh, didn't have to configure everything, but out of the box, it didn't support uh, UUID, primary key Mm -hmm. objects. And you had to do some... Finagling with it, and I was like, oh, "That doesn't feel quite right." Um, so I started a PR on it on Rails. And I was really excited. I spent a few weeks really slogging through the code and and, it, and really struggling, getting some support. And you know, the day I posted it, um, the core maintainer just said, "80/20 rule. You know, uh, the we support what 80% of the people do, not 20%." And just closed it. And then I said, "No, wait. You know, I think we can do this," and kind of my case, and it got reopened. And I tried and tried and it, and it did the other thing. Then it kind of went stale and I ended up closing it myself. And at first I was discouraged, but I, I have to tell you just again, from code triage and having visibility into other people's experiences and seeing people a lot smarter than me with a lot more experience doing much bigger pull requests, maybe with a lot more love that just sit and, you know, maybe you're fought over or go stale and for years, you know, well, I say years, about one or two years, Mm -hmm. um, that made me feel a little better because it happens to everyone, right? It
0: It really does happen to everyone. Agreed. Absolutely. Um, So what do you think the role of open source contribution should have on a developer's career and their community membership?
1: Sure. So I think uh, I've kind of, I'm trying to advocate and and I wrote about this recently, but to my friends as well, I'm trying to advocate for the role of the lay OS uh, open source software contribution, the civilian contributions, right? And don't get me wrong. And there's there's a point to be made here. Most all of these people who are the big, you know, big shot core maintainers of all these gems still are working day jobs, right? They are still working really, really hard, but also maintaining these awesome libraries. They're just really, really good people, but also I'll hear people saying, oh, I I don't, I'd love to do it, but I don't have time. And actually I I think that, you know, for a community to have the voice of more people, I think it's good for us to participate. I think it's good when you run into those bugs in the the wild, when you run into those things, you know, as a user of a library, participating and even filing an issue or starting a discussion is so valuable, but also keeping an eye on some of your libraries. Even if it is passively and participating, I think is great. And I, I honestly believe you could do an hour a month um, on a train ride home, and, and I think even that would add up. You'd see maybe a dozen issues a year closed, or or two or three bugs that someone else had find solved, and you're actually doing give, giving back because we're. Consu- I don't pay a license fee for Rails or Devise or any of these other wonderful things I use. So. It's nice to be able to participate, and I strongly encourage people to, um, you know, not be afraid to pipe up because, you know, I don't hear it much anymore. But Minneswan, right? The uh, mats is nice, and so we are nice. Ruby mantra. I see so much uh, on these libraries. I'm not saying anything about the other ones, but seriously, Rubyists are so friendly and inviting, even on the mean, scary internet. So, <laughs> I, I, I think, yeah. I think it's good for people to be involved and participate any level. If you're writing Ruby or Rails, you know I think we all have a role to play.
0: I agree, and I think there's several ways that you can do that. You touched on this earlier, but you know, getting involved in open source while you're at work. You know, if you're if you're coming across an issue and you have the ability to either open an issue or open a pull request while you're at work and be able to actually be forthright with your supervisors and your co-developers about that. It should be something that's celebrated. You should be in a work environment where contributing to the greater good is celebrated and could even come up on, let's say a performance review and whatnot, I think it can be a really positive thing. Um, that being said, not everyone's so lucky to have free time on the weekends and the nights to be able to work on open source. So even getting involved in Stack Overflow, I, I feel that you know answering questions on Stack Overflow should be considered open source. I think, you know, contributing on Twitter or even just rele- like reading those release notes. You know, every single week, um, Rails sends out a newsletter that goes over the, the latest changes. And I love getting that newsletter because I like to read over the discussions and read over the re- the changes that are coming down the pipeline so that I can educate others and I can educate my coworkers as well. So, yes, open source is good and it's up to you to find ways to get involved. So. Um, I, Nick and I have actually met in person at a conference earlier this year and we discovered that we both love podcasts. So I'd love to ask you, Nick, um, what other podcasts do you think our listeners should be listening to?
1: Uh, well, sure. Oh, I love this question because uh, just as a disclaimer here, podcast love for me is out of necessity. I live in a rural county in the UK and I don't get to be around many Rubyists, so I Force myself into the community by either pinging in pull requests or listening to podcasts, right? Um, so, uh, just as one plug, I do have a Nick's favorite of all things Ruby list, which I think some of these might be on, at schwad.github.io, but I got two for you that you've heard me talk about, but I'm gonna say it here. Um, the first is uh, Ben Orenstein and Derek Reimer, so Ben Orenstein formerly of ThoughtBot, Derek Reimer formerly of uh, uh, drip, drip. Yep, they've been going, and it's interesting because I, I, I thought, oh no, they're not talking about Ruby as much anymore because they're both from core from Ruby land, but it's 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 kind of grown on me, and they're both in a phase now where they are both with new tech sets, building up new products, uh, level and tuple, and talking their way through it together, and we get to listen, so. That's, that's pretty good. I think, I think you may have been listening to that one as well.
0: I love that podcast just because it feels like I'm involved in a private conversation between the two of them. I feel like they're very honest, which I think they brought over from their older podcast, but um, yes, you're right. It is not as Ruby focused anymore, but I have discovered that I enjoy that because Derek will often talk about the differences between Elixir and Ruby. And Ben will talk about the difference of developing on a web app versus a Mac app. So I I feel that it's still really um, helpful. And sometimes, you know, because I work for a nonprofit that works on very stable web applications, it's kind of a a thrill to listen to startups talk about, you know, innovating and pivoting and marketing and doing all kinds of things. It's, It's a great podcast. I highly recommend it. And that is Art of Product
1: yep and uh, oh, I love it and one other that I've got for you that's that's uh, pretty hot off the presses uh, pretty pretty new is with Sam Fippin and Sean Griffin so mm-hmm. Sam Fippin is core on a lot of stuff I know I think he's a core lead on our spec now Correct. and yep then Sean Griffin of Shopify form slash formerly thoughtbot slash uh, core Rails maintainer, Active Record slash Diesel with Rust, uh, formerly of Bike Shed. Um, and they've just started. I think they're on their first or second one. And for your listeners who like that little technical, I'll be honest with you, it's more, it's deep. I like listening to things that are a bit beyond my grasp. And I would say this is one of them. Just to hear people lovingly and casually talk about uh, technical issues from everything from DevOps to Rust to Ruby. Uh, to testing and it's just you can't help but learn when they're just casually talking about and I'm always googling stuff after I listen to one of those podcasts I don't know if you've been have you listened to those yet
0: I have yeah I'm a a big fan it it has definitely been added into my repertoire I even know what days of the week these podcasts come out I'm like oh it must be Thursday
1: (laughs) Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, yeah no that's fantastic so listeners I highly encourage I'll link those in the show notes but you know Um, I hope you're enjoying this podcast and that you want to share that love with other podcasts as well. Um, So, Nick, how can our listeners stay in touch with you? Sure. Uh,
1: Generally on the Internet, uh, my tag is Schwad. That's S-C-H-W-A-D. You can find it on GitHub or schwad.github.io. And, of course, Twitter, Schwad was taken. So it's schwad4hd1.